0: On this episode of Shenmue Dojo Interviews, we go all the way back to the beta testing for Shenmue 1. My interview this time is with lead beta tester, Mike Reinhardt from Sega of America. So Mike, welcome to the dojo. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Uh, Doing very well, and thank you
1: so much for having me. I feel uh, honored and excited to be here.
0: Thank you for reaching out to the dojo, actually. Um, We spoke, obviously, a few months ago when you reached out, and... I'm really, really pleased that we can get you on today. It's um, going to be an interesting ride. I'm looking forward to it. So my first question, I'm going to, before the Shenmue talk, I always do this. Um, can you take us through sort of your gaming history as a, a general fan and sort of consoles, favorite games, and how you came across Sega?
1: Yeah, that's it's it's actually one of my favorite questions because I think my entree into video gaming might be a little different than most. So I was one of the kids whose mom thought that video games were bad. And so I did not have a console uh, for the longest time growing up in my house. So I was that that friend that would come over to your house and play your console, whether or not you wanted me there. And so I spent a lot of times <laughs> at my friend's house playing playing games uh, and locking myself in the room. Uh, so early on, I'd say my early childhood, I didn't uh, have a preferred system. I played Atari, I played Intellivision, um, and then finally convinced my parents to get me a Commodore 64. And that's oh, where fantastic. Uh, I, I got really deep into gaming. And I had a friend uh, who was Danish, and he lived up the street from me. And he imported uh, a lot of games from abroad. And so we played every single cracked Commodore 64 game you could possibly uh, imagine. Uh, uh, yes. um, and so I think I had, I, I want to say I roughly had uh, 900 to 1,000 Commodore 64 games on disk. Wow. Uh, towards That's the tail end of the system. Library. It was big, and it was th- thankful to my friend Jesper. Uh, that he was the one that helped me uh, get into the collecting and trading with people uh, abroad. And so we, we would send stuff through snail mail uh, on on tape even, because uh, at the time, if you, I don't know if you knew that, but they had those speed up programs. That would allow you to to load off tape as quickly as you could off of a floppy disk. So, I oh, really, would, yeah, they would fit. Some of the guys would fit two to three hundred games onto one cassette tape, um, and you could figure out where it was due to the the time log on the tape, uh, and then load it up that way.
0: Oh wow! Gosh. Yeah,
1: it was pretty neat. It was pretty neat. Uh, and so then from there, I went to the Commodore Amiga, which was another beloved system for me. Uh, and then my love for Sega kind of grew at the same time. And it was actually, I would say, somewhere in between the Commodore 64 and the Sega, uh, I started playing Master System at one of my friend's houses. And everyone else was playing NES at the time. Yeah. I thought the Master System was the coolest. Um, it felt kind of uh, different to me, unique. The the, the the IP, the games that you were playing were not the traditional games that you would see on other consoles. And so I really liked the uniqueness of that. Um, I remember the 3D goggles on the Master System were really cool. Uh, and then uh, you know, from there. Uh, I think I bought a game gear, and that kind of continued my Sega love. and so I played everything on that game. and I look at it now when I go back to play the game gear that that screen's so small and blurry. It's amazing that I was able to <laughs> play through games on that console. Um but I enjoyed that uh, and then uh, moved obviously into the Genesis and the Saturn and just kind of fell into uh, a Sega fan, you know from from the Master System on uh, and to to me, again, there were so many cutting-edge concepts and themes in games. Uh, whether it was Panzer Dragon Saga on the Saturn was just a yeah. surreal uh, game to me. Um, or even Virtua Fighter. And uh, obviously, the, the Genesis titles were just uh, some major hits. And Sonic being kind of a cutting-edge spe- speed speed uh, platformer, if you will. And so I was always impressed. Um, and I knew that there was a Sega headquarters in San Francisco. As a kid, I kind of always remembered there being a building there, and then um, as I got older, I kept driving by it on the freeway, and you'd see the Sega building. Uh, it was on at the time. I think uh, when I was in my 20s, it was on uh, 8th and Townsend, which was near the where the ballpark would be for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, just to give you some context and location, and so I would drive by it on the freeway and tell my wife, "Hey, I want to get a job there someday," um, and we would joke <laughs> about it. But it was never I never really meant it that seriously. Um, and at the time I was uh, a teacher and also a swim, swim coach. Um, I was a swimmer growing up and so I was coaching swimming uh, after college. And so from there, um, really I started thinking hard about what my next step in life would be. And it was either go to credential school and become a full-time teacher, Or try something completely different. And I talked to my wife about it, who was a teacher at the time. And she said, if, you know, teaching's not easy. If you really want to think about something else, this is your time to do it before you kind of fully go into it. And so um, I told her I wanted to work in gaming. And I started searching online ads and things in gaming. I think I did an interview at MVC, which was a um, a publisher for uh, gaming news at the time. And That one didn't necessarily pan out uh, but then i answered this ad for video game tester and it was it was an odd ad it was very nondescript um it just said video game tester ten dollars an hour uh inquire here so i called and it was a a temporary agency um and they basically interviewed me and asked me about my gaming background and so i came to them uh, in an in-person interview with a list of games i had kind of cataloged everything I'd played and had, and uh, kind of noted which ones I'd finished and which ones I hadn't. And they looked at me and they were like, you have that many games? And I said, well, over the years, yeah, I've had that many and I've uh, played quite a few. And uh, they said, OK, well, I think you'd be perfect for the job. We're going to send you over to Sega to do an interview. And that's when I found Brilliant. out the job was at Sega. So I didn't even know <laughs> in the initial interview. Um, and then from there, uh, the SEGA team, SEGA test team interviewed me. And they, I remember um, I'm still in touch with most of those folks that were in that interview to this day. Um, and they interviewed me in the same same question. They asked, you know, what, what type of games I like to play? And I brought my big list of games out that I had and played and finished and didn't finish. And they uh, they were like, OK, I think you, you're the right person for the job. And so I pretty quickly got that job. And that was around, I want to say, September of 1999.
0: Excellent, and obviously you ended up working at Sega. You um, ended up at Sega. What was your? Do you remember your first day, first game that you tested? Anything like that? Talk me through I, it.
1: I do. So a uh, couple, couple interesting things. I don't know if you've seen the movie Grandma's Boy.
0: No, um, I haven't.
1: It's an Adam Sandler film uh, about video game testers. I highly recommend it. But uh, I, I avoided seeing it for a long time because I didn't think anyone would be able to capture what testing was in real life. But there's actually some, some truth to it. So when I got there, it was uh, interesting. It was There's probably about 100 testers uh, in two different uh, large open rooms. Uh, nobody had computers at your desk. You had a, a console, and you had a TV with a VHS recorder attached to it. Yeah. And a lot of people would share desks. So depending on how big the group was, and it would fl- influx from time to time, depending on how many games were coming through tests. Um, but there would be anywhere from 40 to 200 testers at one point in time. And they would usually put us two to a desk. Um, sometimes we were four to a desk. Uh, if things were crowded. And so it got, uh, it was interesting. You didn't really have like your own space until you moved up the ranks as a tester. But my first day in particular, uh, was interesting. I ran into, uh, I think the first person I met was this kid named, uh, Rick Ribble. Um, and he came up to me and said, Hey, my name's Rick Ribble, Jr. You can call me Maverick. And I started thinking, okay, okay. Am I in top gun or what's going on here? And, you know, I started realizing that it, You know, the the type of people I was meeting was really interesting and intricate, and everybody was so different. So we had every walk of life represented uh, among this group, from young people to, you know, people in their, you know, later years that were still testing games. And so it was uh, a neat group. Uh, But I think my first day, I I was handed uh, NBA 2K. Uh, Oh, nice. Yeah, so it was the original 2K before it had launched, and I was told to go through all the menus and find any um, typos or bugs. that was my job that day so I didn't even get to play the game. Um, and I thought okay, this is what testing is going to be like. It's not always going to be just play the game and have fun. you got to do some some tasks and, and look through things that may not be that exciting.
0: Great and how did that sort of develop from testing menus to then sort of bigger projects if you like?
1: Well, you know there's two ways to move up as a tester. Uh, one is to to kind of be a good leader and and get other people to to join you in an effort to to find something or discover something in the game. Another is to find bugs on your own and yeah pipe them up uh, that end up being really important for the development team to fix. And I think for me, I was the latter. I, I started finding bugs that were would have been showstoppers. Um, and at the time, there was no patch. Uh, patches for games or things like that. This was uh, pre-patched. So anything that shipped in box was how the game was going to be. And so if you can imagine the pressure on the testers at the time, if you missed something uh, and that game shipped into the world as is, uh, it was a pretty big deal. So that was always kind of on the back of your mind. And so that's what I started doing, was finding bugs that were showstoppers that would crash the game or that would not let you progress or you would get stuck and you couldn't do anything uh, about it. So I started finding. Uh, those bugs and started writing the bugs up on my own which was another task altogether Um, bug writing at sega was really really specific um, and even had a bible in how to write a bug and the reason for that was that the uh the bugs had to be translated and so we would write them in english they would be translated often to japanese because the developer would be in japan and then it had to be recreatable for an engineer so he had to be able to find the exact steps Uh, of how you got to that bug and recreate it on his side as well. And so there became this very specific language in writing bugs uh, that I was uh, ended up being pretty good at, and I think that helped me progress.
0: Fantastic. And going through some of the other games before Shenmue, are there any sort of game breakers that stand out on certain games that you found? Yeah, you know, uh, I think
1: one of my big... uh, progression in the test department was when I worked on Choo Choo Rocket. And Choo Choo Rocket, if uh, if you're not familiar with the game, was an online uh, yeah. console game. And and some people argue it was one of the first online console games. Not necessarily true, because there was uh, online adapters for the Genesis and for uh, even, the I want to say, the, the Commodore. You could play with the modem online. And so there, there's been online gaming before, but this was probably the first, I'd say, mass Online game, and so yeah. uh, this this one was a tricky one in that we had to figure out how to make it work in a in an online environment uh, before it was public. And so setting setting up the network internally, I was a big part of that, and uh, helping make the the test environment work, and then uh, testing the game all the way through. Um, Proved to be pretty challenging. It ended up being about a six months project uh, to get that one out the door, but it kind of led the way for all online uh, testing after that. And so the process we used for that um, ended up becoming standardized for other online games.
0: That's really, really good. Back in the day, obviously, online was new. It was.
1: It was really new.
0: It was really, really. New. You're feeling your way through it almost, aren't you?
1: It, it was like uh, there's a there's a an adage uh, they call it building the plane in the air. That's basically (laughs) what it felt like. Um, There, there were no instructions. Basically, we were handed the game and told to figure it out, and it took, you know, a group mentality to to kind of get to the bottom of how these things work. But there were there were challenges. Like, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Dreamcast, when you put in your um, ISP back in the day, it goes into a ROM and it stays there permanently, Um, and so you have your ISP and your phone number and your internet connection on your ROM inside the Dreamcast. And it won't go to a new one if you want to change it. And so uh, you had to learn how to flash your Dreamcast, basically flash the ROM to get rid of the old information and put new ISPs in there. And we had to test all the different ISPs. So we didn't only have to test the game. We had to test AOL. We had to test. you know, whatever carrier had internet at the time because there were so many different ones. And so we used numbers and carriers all over the country to make sure that the game would work on their, their system.
0: That's a huge project. it's Now when you think about it, so many games are online, aren't they? Yeah, yes. It's almost, like second, it's almost second nature now, isn't it? With, yeah, with, it, it, think, it really is. I think of um, Destiny, this, for example, that's all online. It's crazy to think that it's now second nature.
1: And for, yeah, and even the fact from, that, some games are online all the time. Like you actually have to be online to play them, uh, which is you know the complete opposite of where we were in '99.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Shenmue itself, before you started testing it, did you hear about the project itself internally before it sort of made its way over to you guys? And what did you know about it?
1: So there's there's two answers to this. Yes, we knew the title. Uh, was coming because it was already out in Japan. Um, And so we knew that there was a good chance that we would be um, publishing it in the US. I don't think the decision was 100% yet, because it was uh, a big localization project to do uh, a US release for it. And so I think that was in the works. Um, We had this big whiteboard in the test department, and it had uh, lead testers' names, and my name would be up there. And the games that I was working on yeah Um, and so I found out about Shenmue because I came into the um, office one day and saw my name on the whiteboard and I saw Shenmue underneath it and so I went to talk to the head of the test department which I believe was John Amercon at the time and uh, just talked to him about the project and he said are you interested and I said absolutely Um, at the same time in my mind though I'm sitting there thinking this is probably one of the biggest releases for Sega, and I can't believe I'm taking this long. <laughs> and I was nervous because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with taking on a title like this. Um, like we talked about earlier, if a bug gets through that is my fault, I, I'll never live it down. So I'm thinking that while saying yes to my boss at the same time. Um, and you know, it's it, it one of those things I knew it was a, a life-changing moment to be able to work on this title before I even got it. Um, the reputation of Yu Suzuki was phenomenal, um, course, from Virtua yeah. Fighter to all of all of his games. Um, but even his creativity reputa- reputation was above and beyond. Um, and so, to work on that title, I knew it was going to be something special for me, um, and so yeah. I absolutely said yes.
0: Yeah, and it it was touted as a flagship. I remember reading in the magazines it was this. There was nothing like it. Out there. So I imagine for you guys, seeing it on the other side, seeing something that new, that innovative, a, it's exciting, and b, it's like, what? Where do you start with something like that?
1: Yeah, and that that was the that was the scary part for me. It was it was the unknown. And so we were given uh, it was myself and one other tester at first. Uh, I think his name was Jeff Sedano. And he was a huge help for me because uh, we were given four disks. Uh, none yeah. of them were in English at the time. So we had uh, Japanese menus. And um, we're told that there's a debug tool in the game and told to figure out how to use it. And so the first, I would say, two weeks or so, and, and I'm going to apologize in advance, and I think I caveat, anytime I talk about Shenmue, it's been 20 years. So if I'm off on dates or information, I forgive, forgive me especially especially with the Shenmue Dojo community because I know how smart and savvy everyone is there. But um, we worked on the debug menu for about two weeks and came up with the system of how it works. And we, we had it handwritten. We had like a, a little map of how to, to use the debug menu and where to go in the game. And once we got that, then we reported back to Japan, okay, we know how to use the debug tool. And from there, um, they let me build my team. And so I ended up getting about 10 testers to start with um, and what we did was basically map out how we wanted to approach the game uh, not knowing a lot about the game we knew what we read about the reviews from the Japanese release but outside of that I didn't realize how complex the game was going into it
0: so did they give you much of a brief towards it in terms of apart from obviously the reviews you read what what was the internal brief on it (laughs)
1: The internal brief on it was: this is a high security title. Yeah. Um, we don't have any instructions for you, and you need to go into the game and find every single text overlay. And once you do that, let us know what you see, and if you see something incorrect, misspelled, or um, in the wrong language, let us know. And that's kind of that's kind of where it started. So the the project started, I would say, as a Localization project. Yeah, we were told to find every overlay, um, you know, and then either rewrite what was in there if it was written incorrectly, or flag that it wasn't fully translated yet. And so, the translation to English was taking place while we were testing at the same time.
0: That's that's crazy, and it's ramping up the pressure even more when you've got no instruction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, no instruction that uh, made it made it tough. But I think I I think I mentioned this that the group of testers at Sega were incredibly talented. I had um, super intelligent people that ended up going into uh, different parts of the industry, and they're still working in the industry at this point in time. So we used to joke and call uh, the Sega test group University of Sega because everyone would graduate and go work somewhere else in some other job and, and do really well. So it, if, if it weren't for my test team, it would have been a disaster. But because my test team was really savvy video game testers and had a mind to kind of figure out how to lay out a game and attack it uh, from a testing standpoint, we were able to do so. And so we we started with trying to uncover every text overlay and yeah. quickly realized that that's not a good approach for a game that has events that don't happen the same time every single day. Um, we started realizing that if you run into a character at 2 o'clock in the afternoon versus 10 in the morning, you're going to get a different conversation with that character, or you may even miss a conversation with the character. Um, And I think I had a few sleepless nights uh, right after realizing that that type of thing was happening in the game and it wasn't the same path and progression for everybody and that you could skip chapters, you could skip events. There were sometimes events that would happen once and you would never see them again. There were events that may happen for somebody because they took a different branching path. Um, Little things like naming the cat Not everyone was naming the cat at the beginning of the story. The kitty, sorry, at the beginning of the story. Um, And we started realizing that there were many more of those instances along the way. And so instead of trying to have a conversation with everyone in the game, we started to map out uh, times, dates, and locations, and really focusing on specific locations uh, and and peppering those locations to try to get everything that could happen in a location to trigger.
0: Wow, and that's that's a massive undertaking I mean I don't want to undersell it here because I mean Shenmu one you've got the Dojo you've got um Yamanese, you've got Sakura Joker Dovita the, the, the harbor
1: yeah and the warehouse too
0: uh, yeah and the warehouses as well and all the shops and everything in between mm-hmm. by modern day standards the map isn't considered huge but back then it was gigantic
1: it was it was gigantic and it took us some time to even be familiar with the map, and granted, there are map locations in the game that you can go to and see yeah. what the layout is. Um, but still, understanding how the map worked and each of the locations worked it took us quite a bit of time. So yeah, yeah, it felt it felt huge. It felt uh, endless. I mean, it 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 really felt like an open world game, and maybe could be considered one of the first first ones. Um, Once we kind of had that concept in mind, we started to map out our testing and really try to work in specific areas and also by disk. We would try to do as much as we could on disk one, and then go through it again, and then go through it again, and go through it again, and then I would say, okay, it's time to move into disk two, and we would do the same thing um, and truly really try to trigger as many uh, events as we could. And so we started feeling more comfortable that we were triggering everything. The second thing that made it a little more bearable was our debug tool. So early on, when we were focused on the text in game, we did have the debug tool. And that allowed us to trigger every conversation you could have with somebody um, through the tool. And so we could make that come up and make that happen. Uh, And that helped quite a bit, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't a perfect tool for us. Um, It didn't let you go. Everywhere, if I remember correctly, um, it would drop you in locations, and then you'd still have to do some exploration. Um, so that that wasn't uh, perfect, but it certainly helped, at least at the beginning. But then there was a point where we were uh, told that the debug tool is going to be pulled out, and it was time to start testing the game uh, for the game itself.
0: So almost losing the training wheels in some respects.
1: Correct. And and that's where I think this project was so unique is, is that It started as a localization project. We were uncovering text, writing up text bugs, um, and I think the bulk of the initial bugs were all about uh, the dialogue with the characters. And there were a ton of them. There were um, things that weren't translated yet. There were things that didn't make sense when they were translated. There were uh, grammatical errors, um, and then even we called them nonsensical errors, where a conversation didn't match the conversation that you were having. So Rio might say something, and the, the response was completely off. Like yeah. he would say, "How how are you?" and the person would say, "No, thank you," or things like that. And so uh, there were quite a few of those, and some of them even stayed in the game. But typically, uh, if those stayed in the game, they were with um, I'd call them NPCs, like the the non uh, let's say the the single conversation characters.
0: Yeah, yeah, the ones that you're not going to notice too much if i for want of a better word so i'm i'm, I'm sort of pulling on 20 you know 20 years ago now but do you remember the first beta version you got in terms of what version number it was or anything like that because i know they've ended up on on the internet and various other places over the years yeah yeah so we started
1: i'm i think we started testing and this is again 20 years ago i'm going to say may may june roughly is when we started testing so six months prior to the release of the game and the one you know the versions i've been seeing on the internet are mostly from the august time frame so yeah just based on deduction and this is um not i don't have any physical versions of the early ones or or anything to prove it but i'm i'm thinking that we were on versions that were earlier than the 0.4 that seems to be out there quite a bit
0: yeah 0.4 is the one that is out is the the regularly known version of the beta if you like um and something actually I, uh, that one of my uh, one of our community modders pulled up is actually the version of the passport in beta was different apparently so you had the from the v4 you had the v3 for the passport is there is there any reason for that or is that just the way it was
1: no uh, it's, there is actually a reason for it and that's a really good question and it, it just dawned on me now i saw the question uh, when we were talking earlier and you know, the, the Passport came in at a different time. And so we were testing gameplay disks only at first. Um, and so yeah. my best guess is that it came in at a lower beta number because it came in later. Um, and so we weren't working on that one until I would say a good two to three months into the project. Um, and I had one person dedicated to the Passport, uh, Ron, Ron Rodriguez. He was great. Came into the office with a huge smile every day and just tried to break the Passport uh and it 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 it, it was interesting because at first we had to test it offline um it 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 did have online functionality if you remember Uh, it had leaderboards and it had other messages that you could get from nozomi and things like that and so we tested it completely offline uh and then they forgot to tell us that they'd turn the online servers on for us to test Um, and so i didn't find out about that until very close to the end of the project when the head of the test department told me, oh, by the way, the servers are online. And I I said, how long have they been online for? And he said, well, about two to three weeks. And so we could have been testing it more than that. But it ended up working out. I'm glad we found out because that was another one of those scary moments where you're like, if someone didn't tell me, we would never have been able to test the online portion of that disk.
0: No, and it's um, passable disk is obviously it's it's under sort of Shenmue legend now. Um, The community did. Um, they released a hex edit for it so you could access some of the online content offline now. Oh, that
1: is cool. That is, I didn't know about that. That's amazing.
0: Which is really cool. And um, there's an app, mobile phone app for Android and iPhone now called Super Pass, where a group of um, community members, um, Phantom River Riverstone, the co owner of the Dojo Skill Gym, and a load of others have, have re, basically remastered the passport in a mobile phone app. So that is all, incredible. So it's got all the character profiles. It's got all the videos. It's and it's it's still being worked on now. So it's it's restored that passport almost in line with what we got back then. So it was it was a that's a heck of an undertaking. So I can imagine testing it for for your one man testing it must have been a hell of a task with that particular disc on its on its own because it's so different to the rest of the game in itself.
1: It is. It, it was definitely uh, its own project uh, on its side and and unique because we had to you know play the games and test the leaderboards out and make sure the information was correct make sure it was translated as well and so it, it was it was a unique project in its own it was almost like a we could have had a separate test team dedicated to that if we had the, the resources I think I do still have a beta disk of that I'm gonna have to look through my catalog of stuff but I think I still have a, a passport beta.
0: Oh, wow. And do you remember, I'm I'm jumping questions a little bit here, um, but do you remember any differences between the beta Passport and the one that came out?
1: Yeah, the the biggest difference uh, for us just internally, it wouldn't be publicly facing, was just that we didn't have online working for the longest time. So we tested it uh, without the online and then moved into the online phase. But outside of that, the structure of it was pretty much the same all the way through.
0: Yeah, okay, cool. That sounds really good. And it's interesting. It came to you later on because I, I just assumed it would have come with the rest of the game, if you like.
1: Yeah, it did. It came it came separately. So I it, you know if someone ever were to dig up some of the old prototypes, you know the first early batches, at least in the U.S. would be the first three discs only, um, and and no passport because that's uh, how it came to us. But most of that stuff was destroyed. Um, so we would go through revisions of the game and then turn them back into our our copy department and then they would uh destroy they would shred the discs and so i don't i don't know that there are any of those early ones out there but if they were it would be the first three discs only
0: as far as i understand there probably isn't but i could be i could be wholly wholly wrong so going into sort of testing shenmue itself can you talk through sort of some of the most kind time consuming issues that you came across and any sort of features that were in the beta, but didn't make the final product
1: yeah, um, so you know, aside from the the deep dialogue uh, dive and and editing and copy editing, we basically ended up being um, you know copywriters for all practical purposes you know that that itself was uh, a, a huge undertaking in terms of time, but from there. Uh, there were things like legal issues. So, yeah. you know, Coca Cola was in Shenmue yeah. and was in Shenmue without a license, as far as I know, or at least in Japan, the rules were different. And so, you know, they had to change it to Jet Cola. And there were I think, other things uh, within the, the game that had to be talked about, which was harsh language. So, the game was uh, rated T, and ESRB has different rules in United States than it does in you know than the than the ratings board in Japan does. So the cool. you know, yeah. language isn't as big a deal. So we had to flag a lot of language, and then uh, there was also things that could be um, deemed racist because they were talking about nationalities and you know Chinese people and and different things. And so some of the wording. Uh, I wouldn't say it was intentionally meant to be that way, but it came across that way in the U.S. Yeah. So okay. we had to kind of look at it from that standpoint as well. So, you know, uh, along with testing the game and making sure things were working, those are the types of things we were focused on uh, as we were going through the game.
0: And when you were sort of picking up these these translations or the, the language was slightly different, obviously you're feeding that back in. Did then that require Corey or whoever to go in and do reshoots of those particular lines to to get them correct and get them... Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so so the recording was happening while we were testing. Um, and so they were basically taking our feedback, turning it into a script, and then doing recording. Um, and I know that they had uh, several sessions, including pickup sessions for things yeah. like bugs. And so yes, it did require some re-recording. Um, in some circumstances, I think certain lines were removed as well. If they didn't have time to record them or they weren't deemed 100% necessary for the story, They would just turn uh, that line off and so if it was something controversial or something that needed to be you know translated better um, but it wasn't critical to the storyline they could just say okay you know what we don't have time for this one let's take it away from this character
0: that makes sense especially when you're up against the clock i imagine as well with the release due under that time constraint as well yeah so talking about some of the bugs you found obviously the stair glitch made it into the game are there any sort of humorous bugs that you found, or any particular tricky bugs that you found in the in the beta that didn't make the final product?
1: So, yes and no. So, so the stair glitch was in the game, and I actually talked about it with uh, James a while back, and yeah. he reminded me of it. And at the time when we were talking about it, I didn't fully remember it. I, I vaguely remembered it, and now I clearly remember it. Um, after having seen it online and and kind of going back and remembering who was testing that area, and it was one of my testers named Brian who actually found it. Um, We bugged it, but we're told, and I want to say, we're told it wasn't going to be fixed. Um, And I don't know if anyone ever said it was intentionally supposed to be in the game or if it was just something they deemed uh, not worthy to fix. Um, But to answer the question about bugs that were found that didn't make it into the game, you know, again, mostly conversational things, uh, I think uh, there weren't many uh, motion capture issues. So, like the yeah. the fighting was complete, the uh, QTEs were complete, um, the uh, the cutscenes were all complete. So none of that really changed very much. Um, you know, one one that I do get bugged about a lot, if anyone heard that I tested or was the lead tester of the game, was the um, the uh, forklift races. And yeah. so there's a there's a little area that you won't get counted for a lap if you don't run the course just perfectly uh, and you think you're kind of cutting and saving some time but it doesn't register the lap and so people ask me why that made it into the game and it was bugged it just never got fixed and so because of the timeline that you mentioned we were you know in a in a pretty condensed timeline and because the game was already out if it was something that didn't make the game non-playable oftentimes they would leave it into the game uh, they yeah. wouldn't they wouldn't fix it it wouldn't be deemed necessary to fix
0: and by modern standard, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here, but by modern standards, would, would that be something they would possibly fix now if they had the benefits of patches, do you think?
1: You know, I I bet if they had patches, absolutely. That would be uh, probably a quick quick fix for somebody. But I think at the time, given the timeline, probably given that most dev resources were, were done, at least as far as game development went, um, they felt like going back and, like, breaking open the code and trying to fix that was probably too much work but i think in today's times that would be something that would be fixed and uh, easily addressed
0: and you talk about the development resource itself how was the relationship between you guys as testers and the development team over in japan was that a good working relationship how was it
1: it was a, a great working relationship and so i'll start with um japan really respected the test department and we felt that The developers relied on us. They knew we were an important part of the process. And they didn't kind of look down on us, which can happen sometimes uh, with test departments. And so um, we would work with a a US producer at Sega to write up bugs. And then in the evening, we would get on a call with Japan and report bugs and go through the bug report. And the producer in Japan would ask questions. And I'd often have to chime in and talk about how serious a bug was or what we thought about it. Um, or how recreatable a bug was. There was there was a frequency uh, thing topic that we would talk about, and so bugs were written up uh, or, or by how frequent they were. So a once bug would be something we saw one time. Um, you know, a binary bug would be something we saw every time. And so there was in between there would be twice bugs, three times, um, or always, which was a binary bug. And so we would talk to the developers and the producer and say, hey, we would see this one all the time or we only saw this one infrequently or we only saw this one once and then from there they would decide how important it was to add to the list of stuff to be worked on
0: and with with Japan were there any sort of disputes over certain bugs or anything like that or was it generally they were in agreement with what you guys were pulling up
1: they were uh, in agreement with what we were pulling up the only disputes and I wouldn't even call them disputes uh, were Mm -hmm. things uh, like we talked about that we're already in the Japanese version of the game and weren't deemed important enough to fix. And so, you know, that's obviously uh, the publisher's call to make, and it's uh, yeah. Japan's call to make. And so we we never really it wasn't like an argument. We were like, oh, you have yeah. to fix this bug, and they were like, no, you guys you guys are <laughs> you guys are picking on us. Uh, but no, it wasn't it wasn't like that at all. Um, and even to the fact, uh, I felt the relationship was so good that when Yu Suzuki came. Uh, to San Francisco to help kind of promote the game, he came to the test department, which was unheard of at the time. You know, if uh, a big uh, big person like a Yuji Naka or someone came through, they typically didn't come through the test department. But yeah. Yu Suzuki decided he want wanted to, um, and he, he asked me to demo the game for him. And so I sat down with him and played his game uh, with him and kind of talked through the different scenes that I'm focusing on and basically gave him my pitch on what I wanted to share with the press which we'll get to at a later time but um, I told him the scenes that I think the press would find uh, exciting and kind of show off how special this game is.
0: Yeah and we will talk about that in a bit and you are right it's a special game but I digress into it. So so going back into the nitty-gritty of the the testing um, it's quoted there's 10,000 bugs, or 10,000 bugs were highlighted by AM2. Um, When were you informed of that sort of list of bugs, if you like, and how did that sort of influence what you were doing with the project?
1: So 10,000 bugs sounds like a lot, um, but I believe that to be true. And I believe it to be true because I believe my team ended up documenting about 4,000. And that's for the US version only. So I can only imagine that the other territories had their amount of bugs as well, um, which makes 10,000 seem a very realistic number of bugs. Um, what I would love to know, and so when we were uh, testing the game, we used a program called FileMaker Pro. And that was how we filed away our bugs, but we also categorized them. So we had text bugs, we had crash bugs, we had graphics glitches we had uh uh, sound errors like different different categories and so i would love to see what the category is because i want to say i would like to say that majority of the bugs on that database will probably be text focused because the game is so dialogue heavy and has so many overlays
0: excellent that's good to know And it sounds like a big number ten does doesn't it? it blows your mind but actually when you when you put it like that it's not they're not all game breakers are they and i think that's the perspective i think
1: Correct, correct. That it, it is. It, it was the biggest number of bugs for a Sega Dreamcast game at the time. Um, and by a long shot, uh, I want to say it, it probably doubled, at least doubled anything else that was in test at the time. And I want to say, like, Seaman was being tested. And so it, yeah. it, it, if I could only have a GoPro on uh, back in those days and walk through the department, because you, you would laugh, because you would hear people talking into their controller and talking to a fish. Um, and other guys yelling <laughs> and slamming their controllers down because they they crashed in crazy taxi. It was just, it was so many sounds and voices and things happening at the time. And, and the games that were coming through were just phenomenal. So it was just a hilarious time. But uh, I digress. Uh, yes. And, 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 you know, dialogue heavy, tons of bugs. But at the end of the day, a lot of the bugs got closed. So the two questions I would have for you, Suzuki, um, should I get a chance to meet him again, would be one, you know, of those 10,000 bugs, how many of those were addressed? Because I think a good portion were addressed. Um, and then the second one was, what what categories were those bugs? You know, were they graphics? Were they text? Were they uh, sound? Was it uh, you know, crash bugs, etc. Because I I have a feeling again, I think it's going to be heavily in the dialogue side.
0: Yeah yeah absolutely and this is something interesting obviously i'm sure you're aware the community like digging into the games themselves and they found they've modded them they've done all sorts of things to to the games over the years and two that sort of stood out were nozomi being able to join rio in the park fight in sakura joker and sort of the dragon punch scene at the docks with goro did you see those in test or were they new to you when they came out when the community released them so i i
1: can't recall i'm gonna let, let me let me caveat this i can't recall um specifically but i do remember nozomi being at the park and not being at the park for that scene and i don't i don't think we've t- bugged it i don't think we thought it was anything strange we just knew that certain things could only happen depending on how you led up to that portion of the story and so i think it's a pretty specific path to get that to happen if i'm not yeah. mistaken
0: Yeah, there's certain. I can't quite remember all the events in it, but I think you have to put in a button code on the controller at a certain point before the scene triggers.
1: And then then it triggers the scene. Yeah. and, and, And the other thing is, there's perhaps I remember the scene because I had the debug menu. And so maybe we saw it and debug and then not when the game release. And, and that's where the things get a little bit foggy with me just because it's so long ago. But yeah, um, of course. That that seeing her in the park for that scene sounds 100% familiar to me. Whether I saw it through the debug tool or through traditional gameplay, that's to be uh, determined because I don't I don't remember specifically. But I will say uh, the one scene that freaked us all out was the, um, the angry schoolgirl scene. Uh, that yes. happens um, and, and it's it's a very infrequent scene and it's something we didn't see until late in the test cycle and we were, I, I'm going to say, almost done with the game and I had never seen that uh, scene before and it's it's pretty graphic and it's got language and yeah. uh, so it, it caught us completely off guard to the point that I had to go to the head of the test department and say, we just saw this scene for the first time the game's coming out uh, in a month. And I just want to make sure you know that's in there uh, and everyone's OK with it. And so we, we bugged it, we flagged it, uh, but it ended up staying in the game.
0: So how long did you have the game from start to it going to press?
1: So I'm I'm going to, again, timeline tough on this one, but I'm going to say six months was roughly the test cycle. Um, And it was a grueling test cycle. So my day was 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. And I had uh, at at the second half of that, I was uh, running two groups of testers. So while I think I said I had uh, 20 testers at the beginning, we ended up getting two sets of 20 testers uh, that would run through the game. So I'd have a morning shift and then I'd have an afternoon shift. Um, And because of the security, that became really tough. Uh, as far as distributing disks and getting them back, and then distributing again and getting them back. And so we had this uh, check-in process where people would come by my desk, I would have to write their name down, write down what disk numbers they had, and then send them off, and then make sure they check them back in at the end of the day. And so that was a big part of the protocol as well, is uh, just keeping track of all the disks. And if you can imagine a game that's three disks and eventually four disks, um, and then times that by 20, And then times it by two shifts, I'm keeping track of uh, quite a few discs.
0: (laughs) Wow. And um, did any go missing? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) So there was a point where a disc went missing and I I was panicked. I was absolutely panicked. Um, I guess we're figuring out that I I end up uh, hiding stress well because I keep talking about how panicked I was working on this title. But I was because it was a Yu Suzuki title. It was deemed high security. And so um, it went missing, I think, for about half a day and ended up being in somebody's uh, overhead storage above their desk. And so it was just a mistake. It wasn't uh, someone trying to walk off with a copy of the game.
0: I'm going to be cheeky here. Did anyone try and walk off with the betas?
1: Not with the Shenmue betas, but they had, we had had betas go missing before. And that's you know the nature of a group of anywhere from 40 to 200, depending on the workload that was going on. And a lot of contract employees so you had people that were there for a month or people that were there for three weeks so yes um they did go missing um it wasn't that often because people you know were read the riot act if someone took something it's intellectual property and it's a pretty big deal and so i'd say it happened but not often
0: good good and obviously you ended up keeping what the betas didn't you South. i did yes usual.
1: Yeah, so at at the end, here's the interesting thing. At the I talked about you know the discs always were destroyed, so every time we got a new version yeah. of the game, the old ones were shredded. Um, but at the end, um, one of the uh, I want to say producers came to me and said, you know, this was a, a important project for you. We want you to have a memento, and gave me um, you know a beta version of the game. Um, and so I ended up I ended up with actually two. He ended up giving me two beta versions of the game. One with a debug menu and one without, um, which I've since passed on to other people. Yes. Um, but uh, it was it was a really cool gesture and, and unheard of at the
0: time. And was that probably because it's such a big project and such a massive undertaking? I suppose it's almost like it's, it's a memento, isn't it, of something like that?
1: Yeah, it, it, and 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 the the job agreed. And I think that was a it was a really cool gesture at that because as a tester, you know, we weren't. We loved the free stuff we love when people gave us copies of a game or whatever, but you know it wasn't that common for things like that to happen. So so a gesture like this was above and beyond, you know, as I was through the moon because I knew it was such a special title and that it was cool to be able to have this after the fact. Um, but ironically, uh, the, the job didn't end there uh, because I ended up having to, uh, once the game was finished in test, I ended up having to travel with the PR team and demo the game across the country um, for several press outlets, uh, from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, you name it. I was flying around the country playing the game uh, for people. And so one of those copies that was given to me was also my press demo copy. And I had—I think I had about 10 VMUs that I brought with me with several saves on them. And so I could bring up a specific part of the game that I wanted to for press, because obviously, you couldn't go through the whole game and you didn't want to go through the onboarding at the beginning you know for every press person because i think they would get bored you know after the dolandy intro over and over again if that's what you were showing them so i tried to try to really mix it up and show different unique parts of the game you know even like the motorcycle ride at the harbor was one of the things i showed off and you know, the different locations i tried to make sure i was in each of the the main areas to show off how different everything was and then of course the fun stuff i would always take people into the store and try to buy you know something from the vending machine or go into the bar and talk to sailors which was an inside joke all the time at the office we would walk in the office and ask people about sailors all the time um because (laughs) it was such a funny line in the game excuse me do you know where i can find some sailors we we would would do that all the time um but yes uh it, it it was it was cool and it was it was an easy game to demo because it was so different than anything else that was out there. So while I think the press were mixed on the reviews of the game, they were, I would say, all impressed with the game. So you might see interesting reviews out there where they're like, uh, this game was a huge disappointment. But technologically speaking, it is so far advanced from anything else that's out there. So you see a lot of those uh, Kind of mixed reviews about the game but nobody was unimpressed with the game everybody was completely impressed
0: so how did it come about that obviously you're doing the testing how did it come about that you ended up doing the, the press tours with sega and and show and demoing the game how did that how did that start
1: it's um that's a great question so towards the tail end of the test project um the pr uh, the pr department was starting to plan the press tour and they wanted uh, to see you know what parts of the game are interesting to show. And so they came over to the test department. We booked a meeting room. And I kind of walked them through what I thought was a good story trajectory to show off the game. And as I was doing it um, and talking to the game, they realized that, A, it would be difficult for them to do it because they weren't well-versed in the game. They haven't played it as much as I did. And second, I knew details in the game that most people wouldn't unless they played it as many times as I had. And I think by that time, I probably had finished the game 20-something times. And I think that was probably the average among everyone on the team. Everyone had finished it quite a few times. And so I, I knew pretty much everything there was with the game. And so they felt like, OK, he can play the game. He can talk to the game. And he has a good way to show the progression of the game. Let's just bring him with us instead of us trying to figure out how to do this. And so that's where it kind of became a springboard for my future in gaming. Um, I can thank Shenmu for where I'm at now because that kind of brought me over into the marketing side of gaming
0: and so you, you mentioned the press reactions to it they all even they didn't necessarily like the content of the game it was obviously they all recognize its technological achievements can you are there any particular sort of standout stories from your time sort of um demoing the game in terms of the, the pr the marketing because it's shenri is a difficult game to market i think because it's so different and especially at the time so was was that in your mind as well in terms of how to present that game yeah you know
1: i i kind of took it on my shoulders and that's a great question it, it was a difficult game to market and a difficult game to explain um but i kind of took it on my shoulders that i was here to show the press what was so special about this game and that's all i could do i was like i i, I love it i'm in love with the game i'm in love with every aspect of it and i want to make sure that they at least feel that or understand that and so the challenge was trying to convey that in a short amount of time some of the demos were 15 to 20 minutes um, some of them were longer just depended on how how busy that journalist was or how many journalists I was seeing in a day. And so um, it's really difficult to condense that story or get that across in a short amount of time. So I'd say that the biggest challenge was time, Um, but I would say the coolest moments were uh, when Yu Suzuki came and actually kind of sat in on one of my demonstrations and really enjoyed it, enjoyed how I spoke about the game and talked about it. Um, and I don't know if you heard the story, but yes, I did drop a Shenmu on, or sorry, drop a uh, <laughs> the VMU on uh, Yu Suzuki's foot. So this is something I think I posted on the old dojo, uh, but it's yes. a true story. Uh, I was so excited to see him and I had my press set of VMUs kind of like this in my hands. And then he said, how are you doing, Mike? And wanted to shake my hand. And so I went to go shake his hand and drop some VMUs on the ground. And one of them landed on his foot. <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. Um, but he, he is uh, truly an interesting and creative person, uh, unique in gaming, and I think he, he's obviously continuing to be so.
0: And how did he come across to you, obviously, meeting him the first time?
1: Well, I was uh, nervous as can be, and I have met athletes, stars, musicians, uh, but I was nervous for Yu Suzuki. Um, and so he... he uh, was super calm, very uh, thoughtful about what he was saying, and he speaks in a way where you want to listen to everything he has to say and what's coming next. And it's the way he delivers it in a very uh, mild manner, but in an interesting choice of words. And even him describing his vision for the game, um, it was it was cool. Like the, the room fell silent when he started talking about. How the game came about, you know, where the story came from. Um, he called it, and I'm I'm gonna botch this one up, but he used an acronym to describe what the game was. And this is before the world, the open world term was around, and before um, anything like that. I think he called it Eyes Entertainment, E Y E S, if I'm not well, mistaken. Free. And, free, free. Free. Thank it? you. That's what it was. Free. Thank you. Eyes was one of the in there. I, I can't remember what 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 did free stand for. Free. I, Full reactive eyes entertainment. Eyes and thank you. That's where my eyes came from. Free, um, yes. And so when he said that, it it made a lot of sense. It made so much sense. But nobody, nobody deemed the term or used the term open world at the time. It didn't exist. And so I, I'm I would like to point to this as the first open world, living world game, if you will, um, and kind of pave the path for so many others and. You could play games today and still see things that happen in Shenmue that are happening in games. And like I think of Grand Theft Auto, I don't think there would be a Grand Theft Auto as we know it if there wasn't a Shenmue. Um, I don't think that even like a, a game like Animal Crossing, where you're collecting music for your house, like that was something you did in Shenmue, if you remember collecting video games yeah. and songs yeah. and things like that. And so there's so many things that were so far ahead of its time with that game. I think we're going to continue to see. Uh, people use innovations that were in it, even back from from 1999.
0: And I think it commands a respect within the industry, Shenmue as a whole. I mean, you see CD Projekt Red tweeting Yuzuzuki saying, thank you for creating open world games. And I think whether, whether a person likes Shenmue or dislikes Shenmue as a game, they can relate to the fact that actually, as you say, it was the first open world game before that concept really was popular
1: correct and and the the term didn't exist it didn't exist back then as far as i know and and maybe a video game historian could prove us wrong but it it wasn't a commonly used vernacular at the time um so yes and and the the funny thing is you you talk to different people who've been gaming fans for a long time um, and they have different reactions about the game if people played it and played through it they love it if people heard that it was uh, this huge investment for Sega and was a flop, then didn't play it. That's probably what they're going to remember about it. Um, and that's it's it's interesting. It kind of has that you either love it or you don't type of mentality. At least uh, as yeah. far as a memory of the game goes.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's that's common these days now. Actually, with Shenmue as, as a whole, I think people pick it up. They either act, they either gets you and it gets you hook line the sinker or people just it's not for them and that 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 is absolutely fine but there's no in between with it there's always with a lot of games you get that's okay that's not too bad but with Shenmue it's either I absolutely love it or I'm just not interested
1: correct correct and and it's and again I think you have to play through at least the first one play through the first one and if you make it all the way through I, I can't imagine someone not liking it after that and, it, and again, it's the experiences, it's the aha moments. It's the the little things like playing some of the stand-up arcade games or going to the store and buying things and collections and all these fun things to do. Um, in fact, it reminds me of we found the, the bad ending on accident yeah. because I had one guy that was dedicated to um, playing the arcade games. And so he would just hang out, play the arcade games, and not progress yeah, in the yeah. story. If you don't progress in the story, you get the bad ending. And so we didn't know there was a bad ending; or weren't told. Um, and that's how we discovered it. But uh, yeah, I think I think you're right in that it it does have a mixed uh, a mixed review, if you will, with people. But at the end of the day, like I really believe, if someone plays through Shenmue, they're going to end up loving loving it. Uh, because of the story, because of the uniqueness of it, and because of the depth of it.
0: And this is just sort of my interest, going back to the project itself, obviously, it was a massive undertaking at the time. Fast forward to to modern times now, were there similarities in how that project was handled back then to what practices are in place now for these open world games? How's that sort of testing evolved in that respect now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So after Shenmue, I moved into marketing um, and away from testing. So Anything I you know, mention in this will be speculation, but I'm happy to speculate. So I'll say there's two major differences between testing then and testing now. Um, testing then, there weren't things like betas, open betas, uh, yeah. closed betas, where you could sign up and get people from across the world to play your game and see if it's working and function, functioning properly. So we didn't have that luxury back then you do have that now. And I think that's a huge advantage to be able to do that. Um, the second thing is, and we talked about this earlier, are, are patches. Um, yes. Patches are a game changer, uh, absolute game changer when it comes to testing. And so I think testing pre-patches had to be super meticulous. Um, it's one of those things, again, like your you're nightmare. You wake up in cold sweat in the middle of the night as a tester, <laughs> hoping you don't leave something in the game that's going to be, you know, detrimental to that game or make it so it doesn't work for somebody um, so that's something that's changed because things can get, get patched and we've seen that with games coming out in the modern times and i won't even comment on specific games because i want to put any bad mojo out there but there's games that have come out even recently that weren't working as they should um, but then get patched yeah. and things become much better
0: and i mean i having grown up with old school games as well i is, do you think that's a problem that games are coming out in a, in a state that maybe they shouldn't do you think that's becoming more and more common yeah you know and and
1: again i want to be careful because i'm still in the industry um, yeah, and I, I don't want to I, I i try not to speak ill you know ill of any other company or publisher or anything like that and so I, yeah I, I do think there's there are times when games come out too early and that that's partially just due to the business pressures and the the amount of yeah. investment it takes to make games and you know uh, people talk about how much it cost to make Shenmue back in the day and i think it was 70-80 million dollars something like that which now for a game in today's terms is a drop in the bucket and so you know investment in games slash the need to publish a game and business you know driving decisions it's inherent in the industry unfortunately and luckily we do have the ability to patch but yes Sometimes games come out too early, and, and there's so many ex, you know, external factors for that. I mean, it, it used to be a small studio of five people could make a game and maybe even make a hit, um, and that's kind of unheard of in today's times. Now, it's you know maybe an indie publisher will get lucky, um, but um, for the most part, people are spending and investing hundreds of millions of dollars on games.
0: Yeah, and they're getting bigger and bigger and more and more ambitious in terms of what they're serving up, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. But that goes with the technology at the end of the day as well. I mean, you think where we've come from, from the Dreamcast to the PlayStation 5 and everywhere in between, technology's jumped so much since then in, the, in those 20 years. I'm going to segue back into Shenmue itself, actually. I know you didn't work on Shenmue 2 because you'd obviously moved into the marketing side of things at the time. Did any of your team um, pick up Shenmue 2 from, from your old testing team? And did they? were there any bugs in the beta that didn't make it in or
1: so so two two answers to that um one is most of that team disbanded after shen moon so the way it worked at sega test is once your team finished a project they were all split up and put onto different games so i think okay and again chronologically don't don't if i'm off i apologize in advance but i think fantasy star online was coming in on the heels of this and so people were working on that and then there was alien front online as well coming through and so i think we kind of disbanded most of my team to other teams um uh, so most did not work on shenmue 2 and in fact i want to say the testing ended up being handled somewhere else Um, the test department kind of changed or evolved after shenmue 1. Um, but on the marketing side i do remember kind of that whole decision of whether it should be on dreamcast or not because they were starting to phase the Dreamcast out. We would have these uh, meetings uh, once a week about what titles were going to make it to Dreamcast and what weren't, which ones were going to go to other platforms, and that was an ongoing discussion all the time. Um, there was a title I don't know if you remember the game Propeller Arena. Um, yes, I do remember that, the name. That was one that was slated to be on Dreamcast. Uh, 9/11 happened and yeah. ended up getting canceled in the U.S. I think it released in Europe, but not uh, not in the U.S. So those decisions were being made all the time. Um, so Shenmue 2 didn't have as much a life in the Sega building in San Francisco as Shenmue 1 did
0: and I'm I'm sort of going back in time here obviously Europe got Shenmue 2 on Dreamcast which was interesting because the United States didn't was that a bone of contention in those discussions if you remember at all
1: I, I mean, as a Sega fan and a fan of that console, and I absolutely still love it to this day, uh, I was I was personally bummed out. I was the guy in those meetings that was like, we should do it, we should do it. But I wasn't speaking from a business standpoint. I wasn't speaking yeah. from, from a P&L standpoint. I was speaking from a fan of the console and fan of Sega standpoint. And so I wasn't the one that was making decisions. I was just privy to what the discussions were. It obviously came down to, can we make money off this release or can we not? Um, and so that yeah. was the the bigger discussion. How much did we have invested? Will we do better on another console? And so the the decision yeah. in the U.S. was, let's put it onto Xbox. We'll do uh, much better on another console that's that's you know viable and kind of growing at the time.
0: It's interesting. It's funny because Shenmue 2, I think is one of the highest imported games to America ever. Even now. <laughs>
1: And I did. I did have a copy. A copy was given to me while I, while I worked at Sega for the uh, the European version on Dreamcast. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it it incredible part of the story too. Uh, great evolution of Shenmue One.
0: Yes, and it, some people would argue it's the better. I'm going to use inverted commas game because it's. I, I don't. They, they ironed out some of the, the the criticisms from the first game. I think it it moved at a faster pace, but. Quite frankly, I don't think you can have one without the other. Quite mm-hmm. honestly, agreed.
1: Fantastic. One one thing I did want to mention, that I'm really proud of, and I, I tribute to my test team is I don't know if you're familiar with the the US Shenmue release, but after yes after it released in the United States, uh, Japan released US Shenmue, and yeah. That uh, that to me, and this goes full circle to the beginning of our conversation. Did you know? Did we get along with Japan and the development studio? That that to me was them saying to us, we did a good job testing the game, and thank you, um, because for them to put out a US version of the game was unheard of. It might have been the first one that ever had been done.
0: It might be the only Dreamcast title that made it like backwards, if you like. Back it again. Always comes, yes. Always comes out of Japan, doesn't it? Or at the time, it always used always come out of Japan. And come come over west but for it to go back that way I, I yeah that was energy. it might have been a first
1: yeah it, it really was and that that was uh, that uh, you know among the the grueling work schedule that they had I can't thank them enough um, one other thing that we ended up getting stuck helping with was the uh, the strategy guide and so if you can imagine being a strategy guide writer writer for Shenmu they were kind of in the same boat as us testers where they were given a game and basically had to Figure it out without too much instruction. And so, uh, when we were done testing, and before I went on the press tour, my team would have weekly meetings with Prima and go through the strategy guide and help basically help them formulate the the structure of it and also write it because we had unlocked every single item in the game. We found every single tchotchke you could find in the vending machines. we have gotten the, you know special codes. You, you name it, we've gotten it. Um, and so. That was uh, another kind of you're you're done with your project, but here's another job for you. Uh, it just kind of kept going. <laughs>
0: suppose, yeah, and I've got the Prima Guide. Actually, they're quite rare now. Actually, they go for quite a fair bit of money. And it's it's days.
1: really well done too.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's excellent. If, have
1: you? I mean, like you, that, that it's a really good guide, and that wasn't always the case. And, and you know, sometimes guides where you could tell they were written by someone that played the game for you know, ten hours versus someone that kind of lived it uh, all the way through. And they, they, they structured it really well, if I remember correctly. They walked you through the scenes, and then yeah. uh, then they gave you all the characters with all the background of the characters, and then yeah. Yeah. they had all the items. And that, that was my favorite thing about the guide was that they put all the different items you could get in there. And as someone that tested the game, I still go back and read that because it's interesting to me to see every single little item that was in the game that you could get for your collection.
0: It's such a thorough walkthrough. I know there are other ones that sort of came out as well, but the Prima one is, is the one that I think is the most thorough, most detailed. And it had the thing at the back where you, you'd have to tear it off to get the ending or something. Mm-hmm. Mine hasn't been done. I'm not going to touch it. But, <laughs> but those things are a really nice touch, I think, as well. They, they
1: really are and again like I, I, the, the team that wrote it and worked on it they were so cool and collaborated with us and we would get on weekly calls with them and they they really got a great understanding of the game and did a service for for fans out there it's something that's I think great to have and a great kind of gives you great perspective on what the game's all about
0: it does and speaking of sort of the perspective of the games obviously Shenmue 2 comes out There's the 18 year between Shenmue 2 and 3, um, did you, or what made you sort of stay in touch with the game itself and and, and the community?
1: So two things. Uh, one, there's points in your life where you realize um, you're getting to participate in something that's uh, life-changing and amazing. And I would say working on Shenmue was that for me. And so I always kind of wanted to go back and see what people were saying about the game. It, to me, it. I knew at the time it's one of those games that people will not stop talking about or will not have, you know, lose their their love affair with the game. And and so that's how I stumbled upon the the dojo um, the first time, you know, in its first iteration. And I just, I I would go in from time to time. Um, I didn't. Talk too much, you know, a little bit with with fans, but mostly I wanted to hear what people were talking about with the game, or saying about the game, or doing with the game, and even some of the modding that's going on. It's it's unreal, um, kind of how much has been learned about it, and I would argue that the Shenmue Dojo probably has more collective knowledge about Shenmue than I would say most people that have worked on the game even before it was released. Um, so. Kudos to the community for for everything they've done to uncover every single stone, every single every single unique aspect of the game uh, as it comes through in that site. So it's it, it's cool. And so yes, I love to come back from time to time and see what people are saying about the game and seeing the enthusiasm about the game and seeing the new dojo. I was completely surprised at how much content there is around Shenmue. I and mean, I'm very Shenmue one focus because that's what I worked on. Yeah. Um, but beyond Shenmue One, there's so much more.
0: It's, in, it's a testament, actually, to, to everybody who's owned the dojo and run the, run the place over over 20 years. And it's crazy to think it's 20 years old. But it's, it's
1: it, it, it really is. Um, but it's iterations and uh, community. You know, it's it's uh, ongoing. And some of the people have been there since the beginning, um, since day one. I think they're still active, active, active members from back then that are there now.
0: There are still they still pop in from time to time, um, not as regularly as they used to, but um, it's nice to see they still come in. And you you mentioned modding and community projects have been all sorts of bits and pieces over the years. Even with the modern re releases, there there were mods on the audio restoration, um, high definition textures, etc. There's a group of modders now who are re um, are putting the game into Unreal Four.
1: That is amazing. Uh,
0: which um, they're 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 doing sort of what they're calling a dragon version of the game, which is they've taken all the old, all the assets, put them in Unreal, have re- reverse engineered it, and have got it working, and have done all the animations and everything in between. It's a massive project. <laughs>
1: so that means that eventually they can make their own side stories or canon if they want to
0: and that, that feeds into what they're calling phoenix mode where they're going to modernize it give it a modern look and then look at the 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 side stories maybe the the boat the boat chapter chapter 2 that was cut it's they've 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 got a massive project on their hands and it's really exciting that is
1: really cool and and there's some pre-story stuff too that I'm really curious about and I don't know how much digging has been done on this? But if you've seen some of the early assets for Shenmue, there's yeah. things that appeared in trailers or demos that didn't appear in the game, and I never saw them in tests either. But um, you know, some of the storylines, there's untold stories still to be yes. uh, to discovered.
0: I mean, I go back to the Sega Saturn footage. Actually, um, I think of a Wow Hazuka being stood at the steps of the dojo, and you've got Rio and Fukusan at the bottom. So I'm interested to know what was going on there, and I'm also very, very interested to know, from a story perspective, um, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't played the games yet, is um, how WoW ended up with the mirrors. Yes, a Shenmue Zero type thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's oh my gosh, there's so much of that. And then you know, I think the fourth scene in one of the early Shenmue trailers that didn't really take place in Shenmue One. Uh, a couple other characters that were highlighted more in the trailers that really didn't play an integral part until Shenmue 2. Those types of things, I wonder how much more storyline there is there. I think we're just going to have to corner Yu Suzuki sometime at a at a conference and ask him.
0: He'd have to pull out his um, massive folders worth of, of story because I know it's been cut from 16 chapters to 11. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what what was lost in between. I mean, I'm thinking back as well to some sort of old school footage. Obviously, you have the 70-man battle in Shenmu 1 at the end. Yeah. But there's screenshots of a battle going down from the Hazuki Dojo um, through Yamanose, which is interesting. That never made never made the final cut of, of the game. So I'm interested to see the concept behind what that was, for example. And that's just one example of... of of so much content that we haven't even come across yet, it's scary. Actually,
1: it, it, I, I want. Does anyone have a, a working Saturn version of the game?
0: It's the Holy Grail. No one has it. Whether <laughs> whether it's in the vaults of Sega Japan somewhere, I'd love to break in and get it. Um, I'll but, have uh, to ask.
1: So I have a few friends that still work at Sega Japan. I'll have to just, I'll just ask them in passing. Say, hey, d- does this exist anywhere? But, you know, we didn't see it when I was in test, uh, which tells me it was probably uh, long-shelved before uh, Shenmue 1 actually was on Dreamcast.
0: Yeah, I would, have, I would have thought so. And I'm thinking to Project Berkeley trailers as well, when you've got Ryo hanging off the side of a train, you've got um, Shenhua, and um, she pushes the, the, the thugs off of her, like almost an in intimation to her powers. You've got Shenmue Online and some of the sort of the magical stuff that was coming out. That as well. There's so much there that hasn't been touched. It's it's. There's so much left, which sort of goes into Shenmue 3 a little bit. Have you have you played Shenmue 3 Have you picked it up?
1: I haven't played it yet. I I feel remiss for not playing it. Um, and ironically, one of my close friends uh, works at the publisher that published the game, so he he owes me a copy of it. I will get it from him and to play. <laughs> but you know, I I did look at reviews and kind of see the response. And and again, it it, it feels similar to what uh, Shenmue 1 was, which was again, play the game and and understand it and enjoy it and be wowed by the story and not get caught up in, is it current? Is it, uh, you know, does does it hold up to modern day standards, et cetera? So I, I saw some harsh critical comments about the game, but until i play it i'm gonna reserve my own
0: judgment yeah and i, I mean i don't want to i'm not going to spoil it um and also it was kickstarted it's a completely different ballpark to what Shenmue one and two were developed under completely different ballpark and to get what they got from what they had i think it's a minor miracle <laughs> quite frankly
1: it, it would have gone last forever if this didn't happen and i remember the day the kickstarter opened clearly i was at e3 um Working for for Ubisoft, which I currently work for right now, and um, it was announced, and it, it it was huge. It was like I think in the first uh, nine hours, it had beaten its goal and then some. And it, I think it was one of the fastest uh, Kickstarters to hit um, a million, or, and then to hit six and seven and eight million after that than than any other Kickstarter. So it it to me tells me that there's an audience out there for this game, and. It's a, a a fervent audience that's interested in this content, and so I hope that when that happened, it made people realize that a four is needed, and that the story can continue. It it doesn't have to you know be a part of the main story. It can branch off. It can be uh, you know canon, and create a, a side side world as if you want. Uh, there's I think there's an appetite for it. So I hope I hope that that at least let people know that there's there's an appetite and an audience out there.
0: There that def- that definitely is. And the community haven't stopped with, with Shenmue 3. That, we've got the hashtag, let's get Shenmue 4. And that, I think we we tweeted that within a couple of months of Shenmue 3 coming out because we want to see that story continue. Um, and we're on this path with, with Yu Suzuki himself. I mean, Shenmue 3 was the ultimate dream for, for a lot of us. And it was also the game we were always told it would never happen. So for it to happen was um it was monumental, considering not just that, but everything else was at that e three at the time
1: <laughs> correct and 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 not only for it to happen uh it's a miracle for it to happen in today's climate, it's a miracle because it's it's so hard to bring a game to market now, yeah, it's so expensive you need to you need to have a publisher, you need to have uh obviously uh first party on board and it's it's a it's a big undertaking it's not a let me go program this game and put it out on you know a single platform it's a big deal and so it is a miracle that it happened uh, but again a testament to the community in fact you you just reminded me about the the hashtag uh that's kind of how i came back to Shemu dojo because i started seeing the hashtags for Shenmue 3 and for the, the tweet-a-thons and things like that that were going on at the time. And that kind of brought me back into, OK, there's there's still people here that really want this game. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, and it, it goes back to that. I think once it gets you, it gets you. It's the only way I can describe Shenmue. If it, if it, gets, it gets its claws into you, you're hooked for life. Oh, my
1: gosh. I mean, I could honestly right now go into the arcade and just throw darts and play games and be happy. Uh, because like there's so many subtleties about the game that are enjoyable and then there's the overarching story that's enjoyable so you you can I like to get lost in the minutiae of the game and then remember oh yeah I gotta go actually progress in the story at the same time but I loved uh, going back to the test group I, I had guys that were dedicated to going to the tomato convenience store and buying every single item you could buy there um, going to the vending machines by, you know, unlocking everything you can get from the vending machines, going to the soda machine, getting all the so- sodas, including the, the Shenhua, um, winner. And then, um, you know, that, that was their job, but they had to do it and progress to keep that going. Cause if you didn't obviously you get the, the bad ending. Um, but that, that to me was interesting as well, just the intricacies and, and buying things for your Saturn at home, you know, that the, the small details, even though the Saturn wasn't error correct and yes i did bug that um i still love the concept that you could buy something in a store take it to your house put it into the game and then play the game um that is just it's still mind-blowing to me that i want to do that in every video game (laughs) um so i i uh yeah i can i can get lost in that game easily again
0: and i can and i've like you played it hundreds of times through tests and i've played it i don't know how many times over the years it's it still has that magic
1: it does. And, and you know, as a tester, a lot of times after you've played or worked on a game, you don't really want to play it anymore because you, you, learn, you learn about the game in a different way. It's almost like I equate it to if you work at a chocolate factory, you're not going to go home and eat chocolate afterwards because you, you're tired of being around chocolate, even though chocolate's amazing. But Shenmue was one that even after it was done, after I'd spent that six grueling months of so many hours per day, I still went home and played it. And then I made my brother go home and play it, and <laughs> and uh, you know, like it, 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 was that important to me. Like I still love it. I, I love it as a product. Like if I never worked on it, it's the same. It doesn't matter to me.
0: It's, yeah, it's special. There's only one way to put it. It's special. I'm gonna go back a little bit. Obviously, we're talking about things about canon and and how there's so much story that we don't know about. Have you have you obviously? There's the anime that's been announced. As well have you have you paid much attention to that obviously there's not a lot of news out there about it but is it something that interests you as a as a fan having
1: yeah so i'm I'm aware i'm I'm not aware of like the storyline or what the the intent is behind it but the fact that there's any additional content around it I want to see it and the reason I want to see additional content is because of the characters and their stories and I want it I want them to be expanded I want someone to take Tom and expand his Rastafarian reggae, yeah. <laughs> or you know, Nozomi. I want, I want, you know, I, I want to see more from all of these people. And so it, it would be cool to see uh, how they evolved. And even if it's not the main characters, if they're spin-off characters or you know, characters from different parts of different storylines, that's fine. But to me, um, I'm so invested in the story that anything that touches it or remotely touches it is interesting to me.
0: Yeah, and as you say, it can it can go off in different directions. It can focus on different characters. It can there's so, so many possibilities with it. Let alone the fact that if it takes off, it widens the market for and new fans.
1: Yeah, it makes it more correct. It makes it more accessible to people that maybe didn't have time to play the games or didn't have access to a Dreamcast back in the day. Um, the one thing I will want to know is if Rio is part of the story, will they make him wear the jacket the whole time like he does in the game? I hope so <laughs>
0: <laughs> from the concept art he has his jacket on
1: good good that's uh that's critical and his and his uh cut on his cheek
0: that never heals yeah <laughs> and I, I I hope Corey gets to, to voice him actually but
1: oh that's awesome
0: I hope he does I don't I don't know if he will oh I thought Corey, you oh, okay good uh, yeah that would be amazing he wants to do it he definitely wants to do it Um, but we'll we'll see how we go I'm gonna move off Shenmue very quickly obviously you moved into marketing after working on the Shenmue project what what were your paths sort of through the gaming industry after Shenmue and how did you end up at Ubisoft
1: great great question and I love I love talking about this one and 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 again I, I basically owe this part portion of my career after Shenmue to Shenmue Um, Shenmue got me the exposure I needed uh, with the the publishing side of the business and gave me that opportunity to um, first go out and demo the game to the press. But once that happened, uh, people from the marketing department said, well, you know, he he understands the games. He can speak intelligently about the games. We should probably get him over to the marketing department and help us help us sell what's important with the games. And to me, that was a fun moment. It was also kind of a interesting moment because the the tension between marketing and development uh, was palpable because people always said, well, the marketing team doesn't understand our games, and the developers like I know what's best about the game. So I, I got to cross that line, and take my uh, technical side and technical background and understanding of games over to the marketing side, which I think in some ways made uh, the marketing team it, it made us more credible. And there were a few other people that had done the same, and so you know we had that tech background test perspective every time we were putting together a marketing plan or uh, marketing assets. And it was, if, if I had to boil it down to what the essence of that meant was, what's going to be cool to the audience? Not what is cool to marketing or to marketing out. You know, It's like, what, what do we think is gonna be cool to the audience? We had that idea because we were on both sides of the fence. And so we understood it. And a lot of times you may have seen marketing from back in the day that completely missed its mark because uh, the marketer may not have understood what the audience really thought was special about something or what was interesting about a game. And so I hope that's a perspective I was able to develop and learn over time. But um, thanks to Shenmue, I became uh, a marketing manager. Um, I worked on, I think, Virtua Tennis or Tennis 2K2 is probably one of the first games I worked on and then ended up uh, working on Crazy Taxi 2 and then started moving into sports titles and that's where i have this long barrage of sports titles that i had worked on and so i worked on uh, the nba nfl and nhl 2k games Um, and so that um, kind of put me into the sports marketing side of business and so i ended up focusing more on sports titles Um, and then uh, the developer uh, that worked on the 2k sports games actually Took a few of us marketers from Sega and brought them in-house, and so I ended up moving from San Francisco into Marin County, where Visual Concepts is, and they're responsible for all the uh, 2K sports titles, um, but also had some other interesting titles like Floygan Brothers, uh, Toe Jam and Earl for Dreamcast was developed there as well, and Uga um, Booga was another uh, kind of I'd say like cult classic, if you will, that was uh, developed out of that studio. So uh, it was really cool to be able to work in a development studio while still marketing games. And so it was a rare situation where um, there was a marketing in-house for a development studio. And so I spent probably the next six, seven years there. Um, And that was uh, about the same time that uh, Take-Two purchased the 2K um, business from Sega. And so that was an interesting time, but also a really cool time in marketing. And so I ended up working for Take-Two for a long time Uh, up until about 2017, and then was ready for a change. I had enough uh, sports and I wanted to get back into some entertainment titles and um, ended up at Ubisoft, uh, thankfully, and and absolutely love it. And Ubisoft reminds me uh, a lot of what Sega felt like back in the day, just a bunch of creative folks and passionate about what they work on. And it it kind of uh, reinvigorated my love for, for marketing video games, so. Happy to be working there and, and working on so many uh, fun titles.
0: And did you work on, um, especially Ubisoft, like uh, the Assassin 3 titles and the Watchdog titles, etc.?
1: So I'm, I focus mostly on Tom Clancy. So I oh, yeah. work on uh, yeah, the suite of Tom Clancy titles: Rainbow Six, uh, Ghost Recon, yeah. uh, and the Division. And then um, I have some other titles. So I worked on Steep and the Crew Two and uh, it, the neat thing about Ubisoft is, I is they mix up what games you're working on and what teams you're working with uh, every year. And so, I I might be Tom Clancy this year, or next year I might be solely focused on another uh, franchise. And so, that's it's been interesting. I'm I'm going on my third year at Ubisoft
0: and, and really loving it. Excellent, it's good to hear, and it's good to hear you're still um, still involved in the industry as well, with all that wealth of experience. It's it's great. I'm pleased you're enjoying yourself actually. Thank you. Um. I'm going to sort of close this down with, with one final question, um, and it's one I do with everybody. is it, Do you have a message for the Shenmue community?
1: I do have a message for the Shenmue community, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, I am 100% impressed with the wealth of knowledge and the passion that the Shenmue community and the Shenmue Dojo has brought uh, to Shenmue. And I, I deem the community responsible for Shemu 3 being released and for the wonderful Kickstarter that happened and, and potentially more titles to come. And so I can't thank everyone enough for the time and energy they put into this. And, you know, it's it's obviously we're fans of the franchise, but this is beyond just being a fan of the franchise. This is living it and becoming a community with people about it. So I I just want to say thank you to everybody for for doing that. Um, everything from the tweet-a-thons to the modding to the talking about uh, betas and and everything else there is with Shenmue. It's just it's it's fun to see and fun to watch and even as someone that worked on the game I, I bow down to you guys.